Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Lord Nicholas Stern, Baron Stern of Brentford. He's the IG Patel Professor of Government and Economics at London School of Economics. He's also chair of the Grantham Institute and of course, author of the seminal 2006 Stern Review into the Economics of Climate Change. Please welcome Nick Stern to Cleaning Up. So Lord Stern, Nick, Great to have you on Cleaning Up. Hello, Michael. Very happy to be here. Now, it's, it's entirely my pleasure on this very hot summer's day here in London. It's so hot that I've broken out my Mexican guayabera. So uh, I hope you noticed that little touch. I'm hugely impressed. It's very elegantly white, but more than white, as uh, the Mexicans uh, usually make it. I was just looking for a bit of sort of light, you know, sometimes you have sort of jolly stripes and so on on these things. Well, no. So this thing, I um, I actually got it uh, during a, I think it was a clean energy ministerial in Merida in Mexico, where um, I suddenly realized that I needed one for the evening event. And it was actually just the right thing to wear in this sort of slightly sticky weather that we've got going at the moment. Um, so, uh, Nick, as we record this, we've just seen the, uh, the communique coming out of the Cornwall G7 meeting, and you were very involved in preparing for that meeting. And uh, then you've, you've also got some thoughts on that communique. So what have you been doing to, to get that meeting up and running and make sure it came to a successful conclusion? As a result of a couple of meetings with Prime Minister Johnson last year, uh, he asked me through the G7 uh, Sherpa uh, to put something together which would try to uh, provide a coherent integrated response to the problems that we face uh, in the COVID crisis and coming out of that from the point of view of the economics and the health, the, um, the problems of social cohesion and harmony is internally that in so many nations we've been running into over the last years. And of course, the challenge of climate change and that we had these problems which were interwoven and that we could see that the right way out of this was to invest strongly in the right things. We didn't want a consumption boom of the roaring 20s 100 years ago, and we didn't want the premature uh, you know, dive back into austerity that we had a dozen or so years ago after the um, great financial crisis, that we had to invest out of this and fiscal responsibility was about getting growth going through investment uh, and then <clears throat> building your tax position up as you start to recover. And further, it was crucial to invest in the right things, invest in the technologies of the future, invest in the technologies that didn't damage our biodiversity as well as our climate. So as a result of those discussions, a couple of occasions last year, I was like, he asked me to put this together so that's what we did. So it's so uh, it came out in May the on May the tenth, um, public public document. It was independent of government, of course. I wouldn't have done it otherwise, and that formed a background to the uh, approach 
of the G7. And I think it's reasonable to say that in terms of strategy anyway, the G7 communique, uh, which does actually acknowledge the, the, the report, but recognizes the report, but the substance of that communique is I think strategically along the lines of, um, this is how we have to recover, has to be driven by investment, but investment of the right kind, sustainable investment. And that I think is a good thing. Um, my main concern is that um, the means to deliver on the strategy and the declared ends uh, were not really uh, adequate. So let, let, let's get, let's talk about the um, the means to deliver. But um, you had this sort of one trillion dollar figure. You were saying that the G seven should sort of announce a further was it a further trillion or a trillion of um, uh, clean? It's kind of climate transitions investment, but specifically triggered at, um, at, at restarting growth as we come out of hopefully the COVID pandemic. Is that correct? It is correct. What, what we argued, and it, it's beyond the G7, but the, the one trillion extra investment is G7 oriented. And what we said is that if you look around the world, except China, where investment is very high already in China, what you need to do is to change the composition of investment not necessarily increase it. But outside China, the kind of challenges the world faces in terms of recovery, in terms of infrastructure deficits uh, across the world, uh, and in terms of the investments we need to make, the opportunities for investments we have, particularly in the energy sector, but also in, in uh, natural capital. If you put those perceptions together, what do we need to recover in an investment-driven way? What do we need to rebuild and to strengthen our infrastructure, which is weak in so many countries of the world? And what are these investment opportunities, particularly in new energy? You spiral in, these arguments are, are not additive, they are complementary. You, you come back to around two percentage points or so, increase in investment that's necessary. And that boils down to roughly a trillion a year in the G7. But that idea of two percentage points extra or so on investment is is uh, across the world except china and and the two percent is that a two percent increase in investment or two percent more of gdp that should go towards investment? the latter the latter points of GDP. because two percent of investment would be point something something this oh, is two yeah, percent yeah. of gdp right that's right and it's um it, it's not far away in the g7 from the ratios we had 15 or 20 years ago and this is in a world where interest rates for the g7 countries are on the floor. You know, we live in a world which has got, if you like your Keynesian uh, stories, planned investment far too low relative to planned saving. Now, the answer to that is not to cut your saving, it's to increase your investment. So to generate uh, that extra increased investment is a matter of uh, policy to encourage that investment. Uh, and then you have to organize the right kind of finance, in the right place at the right time. But the savings will be there. It's the right. demand for investment that's critical. And then organizing the right finance, because you know a lot of investment is risky, whether it's green or, or brown. And what you've got to do, particularly since you need to increase investment, and need to uh, increase investment of the green kind, you've got to have the right kind of finance to take the sort of risks that are going to be there up front, particularly in infrastructure. And of course, right now, you've got the excess capacity in the economy, so you don't worry too much, presumably, about inflationary pressures in the certainly in the short medium term. 
I, I think not just now. I mean, there are. I think there are short run pressures there to do with restarting. You know, you, you, the hospitality industry has discovered, perhaps unsurprisingly, that a lot of its potential employees or past employees have migrated elsewhere. And of course, after Brexit, they don't have the uh, the you know the, the workers from Europe to fill the gaps. So I, I think that's the kind of inflationary pressure. Which will which will be short lived. Similarly, you know, the builders' merchants are uh, not overly supplied with with stock. But I think those are short run stories. The basic position of underemployed resources and what we've seen over the last ten years or so, uh, interest rates on the floor because planned investments not high enough. I wouldn't be worried over these next few years about the inflation part of the story. Maybe let's come back to that. But um, you said that China, in terms of what you invest in, that China has to change its uh, mix. But let's let's stick with non-China for the moment. Um, what did you say about the mix, the sorts of things that that trillion ought to be going into? Because you've talked a lot about infrastructure, yeah. uh, but also you talked about technology. So what sort of mix do you yeah. see? Well, we need lots of innovation, but First and foremost, the uh, big investments are in the energy sector, particularly electric power. Um, if you look at work of the Energy Transition Commission, which is a very good group chaired by Adair Turner and Ajay Mato, um, they, I mean, for transparency, I'm a member, but they, these are the driving forces, not me, in that, uh, in that story. If you look at the numbers, you need something like uh, the numbers that need to get to net zero by 2050, you need something like a quadrupling of electric power. Since so much is going to run off electric power, including, of course, not only what runs off electric power now, but also a big part of our road transport system, a big part of our heating system and so on. So you're going and, you know, if we move strongly into hydrogen, you need a lot of electricity to make that. So they, their estimate is, and it fits with the International Energy Agency as well, is roughly a quadrupling of electric power between now and 2050. And all of that being net zero electricity by 2040. So that is the big, big part of the challenge. And that needs the kind of investment numbers we've been talking about. Now, these are investments with, wonderfully attractive returns. So much of electric, electric power investment in renewables with storage is already cheaper than the dirty you know, last century uh, fossil fuel stuff. So these are investments with great returns. We kill in, around the world something close to 10 million people from air pollution out of a total number of deaths a bit more than 50 million people. <clears throat> a year. That's huge. Now, not all of it is from burning fossil fuels, but a lot is. A lot is. So, you know, if you think of those investments, we do have to make those strong investments, a couple of percentage points extra of uh, GDP, but they're, you know, very high return. They've got low costs, all kinds of uh, co-benefits and uh, so on. But you've got to make the investments. 
Okay. Now, just one thing we do with these, um, this YouTube channel and podcast is we'll put into the show notes links. So we will link to your report for the G7. And obviously we'll link to the G7 communique. Um, you've talked about the, uh, the, the toll from air pollution. I think that's World Health Organization. Um, a big chunk of that is indoor, is actually indoor pollution from burning wood and dung and, and so oh, on. But, but we'll put details in the We'll put some details into the show notes. You're absolutely right that, that that's um, you know that there are fantastic returns, financial and also social or health returns from yeah. that. Um, and the International Energy Agency report on net zero two three weeks ago, and I absolutely. think Adair Turner's Energy Transition report April twenty seventh. So we'll, we'll actually, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in absolutely. And in fact, we had on this show, Christian Ruby, who's the uh, Secretary General of Euroelectric, the Association of the European Electricity Industry, talking about how direct electrification will go from its current 20 to 20, I think it's 22% of energy provision to 60%, um, which is consistent with your uh, quadrupling figure there. So uh, absolutely right. That doesn't even include hydrogen. But I want to push on something because I was on the board of Transport for London and the big project when I was on the board and it was on track and on budget when I left the board was Crossrail. And Crossrail was first proposed, I think it was 1947, and ground was broken in, I think it was 2010, if I'm not mistaken. And so... Um, Whilst from a climate perspective, what you're talking about makes perfect, perfect sense. Does that make sense as the sort of quick economy restarter after COVID? Because I wrote a piece where I extolled the virtues of energy efficiency and the, the distributed solutions uh, as being perhaps quicker to jumpstart. I, I think you need a clear program. This is a 20-some year story where the first 10 years are of critical importance because we have to get emissions down quickly. And I think you have to put the bits together. In terms of recovery from uh, COVID, retrofitting buildings is with the right organisation is something that you ought to be able to do uh, fairly quickly. Uh, you could start, and we emphasised natural capital, you know, you can get to work on restoring degraded land and planting trees uh, quite quickly. You can accelerate the rollout of broadband quite quickly. So they're quite, and, and solar panels you can, and other ways of uh, solar energy, you can do quite quickly. So there are quite a number of things that you can do quite quickly, which do respond to the challenge of unemployment. Um, at the same time, you know, you've got to see that as part of a story that runs uh, forward. You know, but energy efficiency, as you say, through retrofitting buildings would be something that, uh, I mean, we really need it anyway. But why not get on with it now? And if you know you've got to do something and you've got unemployment now, this is the moment. And one of the, one of the criticisms that I had when I wrote my piece about how we should be doing energy efficiency and uh, solar roofs and home batteries and so on as the way of jump-starting, and it's a very valid criticism, was that um, as things stand, most of those jobs will go to men. That's just the structure and the nature of the, build, of the building trades and indeed the engineering sector, uh, even, if you're, even if you're looking at the, the, the technologies of the maybe not 
the, the distant future, but, if, you know, in, in five, 10, 15 years time right now, they are dominated by men. Did you look at that? Because there are presumably things that one could do to try and shift that quickly. Um, but but it's it's a that's a tough challenge, is it not? It is. We raised it, but we didn't go into detail in how you tackle it. I do think that a lot of the job gendering is something that one would like to change. But, you know, it's not something that is a fixed coefficient, the ratio of men to women in a particular form of activity. But it does take a bit of time to, uh, to, change, to change those things. At the same time, a lot of, you know, if you look at uh, health and education, there's a, a majority of women relative to men in those activities. And those are activities too, where a lot of investment is needed. And, you know, if you focus on schools and hospitals and extra investment in those areas, I don't regard that as a conspiracy against zero carbon. They are good investments. Of course, you can make your schools more efficient uh, in terms of energy, make your hospitals more uh, efficient. You can explore different ways of educating as we have, of course, in the in the higher education uh, sector as a result of the pandemic. But uh, I, I don't want to, as it were, um, duck out of those questions, but they should be tackled in a strong way. And I think much of what you would do would be complementary to the kinds of investments that we're talking about here. Yeah, I suppose I'm just I would I would like to see a more coherent response, not from you, but from, you know, from policymakers to say, OK, right now we have the industry structure and the gender structure we have. But that is not there's no there's no inherent reason why that needs to uh, sustain. And, you know, I think I wonder, for instance, you know, I wouldn't like it where if it was said, well, the, our, our number one challenge in the world, the thing that needs to really be top of mind is climate. But that's going to be 70, 80, 90 percent you know, male dominated. I think we need to fix those, those gender balances. Oh, absolutely. At the same time, it's very important. And I also wonder whether the nature-based solutions might be a space where you could almost start with a more uh, balanced uh, workforce. I hope so. The farming is not, is a bit male dominated as well, but, you know, but things like uh, horticulture, working on, um, uh, working on forests and so on, there's absolutely no reason why that should be Correct. Yeah. Now, as you go forwards, um, if you're on this kind of climate war footing, of, you know, increase the trillion dollars within the G7 and, uh, and more if you go outside the G7, do you worry that there will be ultimately a resurgence of inflation that will require um, addressing because I'm just very struck. I found a thing recently, which was actually, you mentioned Keynes. He wrote something about how to finance the war. And he suggested using war bonds, which would, uh, which would sort of suck demand out of the consuming economy during the war in order to allow space for the wartime economy, or in this case, it would be the climate economy, to, um, to, 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 to absorb talent and absorb resources without driving inflation. Do we need to be thinking about something like that? Maybe not for the next five years, but if that, you know, you, you want to keep the pedal flat to the floor for the next 10 years, let's say. Yes, yes, and beyond. But the, I mean, the first thing is that this position of planned investment being you know, too small in relation to planned saving has been with us for quite some time. 
you know, Larry Summers has spoken about secular stagnation. We've seen interest rates zero or in real terms negative, sometimes in nominal terms negative in some countries. So I think that challenge of too much, uh, uh, you know, the, the, that challenge of having to control consumption is not yet there because, you know, you've got this surplus savings. That's the position which we are in. And so that problem would be down the track. I don't know how far down the track, but I would have thought a few years uh, at the minimum down the track. So, I mean, Keynes was during the wartime was talking about, talking about a very firmly fully employed economy. We haven't yet you know, recovered from COVID sufficiently to describe it that way. And we have to look back at the decade before COVID when there was surplus savings. So I don't think that's an issue yet. Now, your focus for the last few months has been on this G7 uh, report and the G7 uh, community, you know, culminating in the in the decisions and the communique. Um, but that's G7. Um, that's the rich democracies. Um, what what do we need to do beyond that? And you've been working across the across the globe, not just you know, not, not that's only been a temporary focus on G7, correct? Yes, I, I, I've spent I've been working in India now for nearly fifty years, and in uh, China for well over thirty years. And my first ever research program was on tea in Kenya in the late nineteen sixties. So. Uh, my uh, career has been that largely is the development economy, growth and development and public uh, policy. Uh, we're working quite closely with the G20. And just as a rule of thumb, you've got the G7 is about a third of the world economy and the G20 is about three quarters of the world economy and not so very different fractions in terms of emissions of greenhouse gases. So the G20 story is extremely important. And we now have three years where the G7, G20 constellation of presidencies is really quite promising. This year, we've got G7, G20, UK and uh, Italy. Hmm. Next year, we've got G7, G20, uh, Germany and Indonesia. And the year following, we've got G7, G20, Japan and India. And all those countries now are talking to each other. And that's something that I and others have worked hard to try to promote so that we get a three-year perspective. Now, in the past, you've had G7s or G20s dominated by the particular enthusiasm of the leader of that particular country at that time. Now, I think, with the shared experience of these two global crises of COVID and climate, you're starting to see internationalism uh, come back in terms of the shared view of how we should act together over, over a period of time. And if you look back to last year, 2020, the G7, uh, G20 constellation was the United States under the presidency of Donald Trump and Saudi Arabia. Well, so in 2019, um, I flew down to uh, Argentina because that was the G20 uh, presidency was Argentina and there was the energy minister's G20 meeting. And um, 
I thought that I'd be able to inject a little bit of, you know, maybe some data about how expensive or how cheap clean energy is, what else we need to do in clean transportation, the difficult bits we could get into, get some work done. The entire time was dominated by the fact that the US would not use the words climate change in the communique and that Germany and the EU would not sign off the communique unless they included the word climate change. And so I had a very nice time, very embarrassed about my carbon footprint flying down there and flying back to absolutely no effect because no work was done effectively. But we have a three years now as yep. I said, of, 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 of what looks like a fairly sensible uh, constellation of countries. And we have a shared view of those two crises together. That is, I think, a different kind of period internationally. But if I might put you on the spot and ask you to do almost rapid fire, it strikes me that um, the the... The world divides, okay, you've got the kind of the rich democracies we just talked about, the G7, but then you've got a bunch of very um, fast developing countries, the Chinas, the Indias. Um, I'm not entirely sure who else I should add in, Indonesia, Malaysia, but certainly people like uh, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, um, in Africa, maybe South, South Africa is a bit um, on its own, but you know, Ghana, places like that, that are energy importers, so developing countries are not all the same. You've got energy importers, but then you've got the energy exporting countries. I'm thinking of the, the Russias, the Saudi Arabias, the Venezuelas of the world. I mean, you could almost, you know, broadening it from the developing world, maybe uh, just talk about whether they are uh, energy importers, energy exporters. And then, of course, you've got the slower developing countries, uh, the ones that are still really struggling to get industrialization uh, going. What would be your prescription, the kind of rapid fire, quick prescription for those different groups? And you can cut it if you prefer to cut it in a different sort of segmentation, uh, then, then fine. But I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to come energy, back to the, Energy yeah. importers are people who in the past have had not had enough fossil fuels to meet their overall demand. The right response to that is to change your dependency on fossil fuels. And that's a huge opportunity. And it looms large for those countries, not simply because of the terrible air pollution and climate change that the burning of fossil, fossil fuels creates. But the argument about energy independence and energy uh, security and the insecurity of depending too much on the import of fossil fuels is a part of the story. It's a big part of the politics and the economics. And so India, you know, which has quite a lot of deserts where there's plenty of sunshine and the land is uh, cheap has real opportunities there uh, you know there's a company called renew which you probably know of which is delivering in its bids now round the clock solar for under three cents per kilowatt hour and if the cost of capital came down that cost would come down quite a bit as well so i think increasingly you're seeing um, a, a realization that those things come together, a, a much cleaner way of producing your energy, a much healthier way, a low cost way of producing your energy, and one that doesn't make you so dependent on fossil fuel oh. imports. Okay, so that's that group of currently 
importing. They've been and, and India. I saw a figure a few years ago. I think it was when the when the oil price was very high of something like they were on track to to have seven percent uh, of their GDP would be overseas would be importing energy if if the energy prices had not come down. I mean, it's a huge, these are huge numbers. So yeah. they get sorted by shifting to clean resources, right? What about the next group, the countries that are fully dependent on exporting fossil for their economies? W what's the prescription for them? Well, they have to make a, a transition. You know, if, if, if it turns out that what you're uh, selling is a product for which the world is rapidly going to reduce its demand, then there's no doubt that you have to reorient your activities. And, you know, for example, the arch oil exporter is Saudi Arabia. And they are already starting to move strongly because they also have deserts and lots of sunshine. They're also moving quite strongly into, uh, the, into the possibilities of renewables. They're looking at algae, of course, as well as, uh, as possibilities. So some of the oil exporters, not all, of course, but some of them would have that kind of uh, possibility. Others would have to really change their pattern of uh, production. But in, in many cases, you know, if you look, the economic historians have drawn attention to, as it were, uh, the oil curse, that actually having a natural resource, which allows you to sort of sit back and not do much, has not been, on the whole, a driver of growth. So over the medium term, I think the switch to new activities would actually be in historical retrospect uh, 30 years down the line actually seen as beneficial because you would be at, you know, starting to produce things based much more on human capital and skills and so on than this kind of, uh, of, of resource, resource capital. But having said that, there's an adjustment that needs to be made and they have to, the earlier you start thinking about that adjustment, uh, the better. Do, do you worry that they'll start to be very mischievous, that they may become bad actors in climate diplomacy? Because it, it is very threatening. If you're a Russia, you're an Iran, you're a Venezuela, you're an Australia even, um, this is a wrenching change. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's a wrenching change. It may you don't have to you don't have to sort of check out from, you know, the science of climate to say, well, you know, maybe we could just keep going for 10 or 15 years more, salt away a bit more uh, money, you know, wherever the salting is good, either in, an, in a national fund or in Switzerland, depending on your kind of house style. But do you not worry about that, that you're, you know, that the, the kind of the, the, the plea to sort of make the transition would potentially fall on deaf ears? Well, I, the first thing is the demand side. I mean, if the world is switching very strongly away from fossil fuels, then that demand is going down. It becomes a fact of life, right? And you don't go on poisoning and, and polluting because uh, one or two or three or 10 countries have adjustments to make. You couldn't possibly not do it for that reason because you'd be killing people in very large uh, numbers simply because you weren't able to make the adjustment and you allowed some countries uh, to veto. So I think that those countries have to, in many ways, accept what's going to be a fact of life, is that the demand for their products is falling. Right? And that happens. You know, the, uh, the whalers saw the demand for their uh, uh, products fall when electric lighting started to come in. 
the people who looked after horses saw a fall for the demand in their product as the motor car started to come in. These things happen and they can happen quite quickly. The right thing to do is to look ahead and to prepare. And in this case, particularly invest in people. If you take, uh, if you take Russia, the potential for investing in human capital there, I would have thought would be uh, very large. Um, that's, uh, that would make Russia much more productive in the world than uh, resting on um, fossil fuels. And indeed, probably by now, uh, the fossil fuels as a, as a fraction of the GDP has, has already fallen quite a long way. But you have to think ahead and invest. I don't think there's a compensation story that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but what you can do is to try to uh, be helpful around the investing in new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I mean, I suppose I remain very concerned, partly because in a lot of those countries, the elites are, you know, they benefit from different things from the people. So the people would benefit from education, from full integration in the global economy, uh, from diversification, etc. But that actually is something that would undermine the grip of the elites on power uh, in lots of these countries that have already effectively succumbed to the oil curse. Yeah, if you look back over the last few decades and you look forward to the middle of the century, I think the economic historians of 2050 would not see Venezuela's oil as of having brought great development benefits to Venezuela. Yeah, and, and, and we, could, we could scroll through some other countries. But there is that final group I want to talk about. So I'm on the border trade um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, and I'm trying to grapple with uh, the current flavor of the moment, which is carbon border adjustments. And everybody's decided that they are, uh, that they're desirable. Um, I've been talking about them and actually sort of saying that they're probably an inevitable uh, part of the landscape for quite some time. Um, but of course, if you're that last group, the lesser developed countries, the, the, the slower developing countries, uh, the ones that are still uh, they don't have the natural resources, or they may have the natural resources. They may be a Mozambique, fabulous natural resources, gas, etc., but not yet uh, developed. Um, what what is the strategy vis-a-vis them? Well, on the let me take the border adjustments first. Um, it, essentially, um, the evidence on the relocation of production as a result of environmental policies is very weak. We looked at it at the time of the Stern Review, uh, 2006, and the evidence then of relocation of production to somehow take advantage of relaxed environmental policies was very weak. And not surprisingly, because if you're deciding where to produce something, you worry about the availability of the right kind of labor. You worry about the behavior of the the government and uh, whether it gives you a hard time. You worry about the quality of the infrastructure and the transport links and so on. Those are big things in your location uh, decisions and not some environmental regulation which may currently look a bit lax, but may not necessarily look that way in the future. So uh, that was back then in 2006. And I think the evidence is still very much the same way. Of course, in the meantime, we've had more uh, carbon taxes and carbon pricing. So that's another kind of environmental policy. But still, the only places it makes much difference are in the energy intensive trade exposed sectors. There are not many of those, uh, perhaps half a dozen. Steel, aluminium, cement, some plastics. 
that kind of that kind of thing. Now, uh, rather than erect something which is incredibly complicated, you know, a border a border carbon adjustment right across every product, you should focus on those few where it is of relevance. And there, um, you, you can't be just dismissive and say it's only five or six industries because those industries actually are responsible for quite a lot of the carbon emissions. But, you know, even cement, you know, people don't move cement around that much because it's so heavy. Yeah? So it's only a few that really count. Steel, I would put up front as being of particular importance. So when I'm asked about this, you know, say first look at the evidence on relocation. Second, narrow it down and then think about what are the ones that are really going to make a difference. And what we want as a world is a much cleaner production process for steel. We can see how to do it. It's a little way away and it's still quite a lot more expensive, but we want to try to bring that through very fast. So we should be investing strongly in R&D around that. But having said that, it does seem to me that you could put in place uh, just a few industry specific policies where you can measure, roughly speaking, the carbon content of particular kinds of steel, and you can have some idea about the intensity of carbon policies in the countries which are exporting the steel. So it ought to be possible uh, to manage that in a way which was fairly modest and in a way where you could speak with the steelmakers of the world, look at the industry organizations, talk to the countries which are exporting. And on the whole, Africa doesn't export much mm. steel. So it's not an issue which would trigger, as it were, the widespread suspicion of protectionism, which a, a economy or sort of whole import-wide story. And that would be very dangerous to uh, have an import-wide story of border adjustments because I've, I've been to all the COPs since 2006. The biggest problem at all the COPs is suspicion of the developing countries of the rich countries in trying to restrict their development or to impose protectionism. And it's hard to argue that that suspicion is wholly unfounded. So it would be very dangerous for the COP process to do something which would trigger the suspicion of uh, protectionism. And that's a very important reason why it's so important to narrow the focus on any border carbon adjustment story. Yes, and, and that, that worry about protectionism and the, the carbon border adjustment story just plays uh, you know, so easily into that. And I, I'm thinking maybe not in terms of steel, not necessarily in Africa, but um, if you look at Malaysia, you know, they would produce steel and they would put it into cars and they would sell it into Europe. And so Europe saying, oh, no, you're not going to be allowed to do that for some, you know, climate reason, which may seem very urgent to us on the streets of European capitals, but probably isn't quite seen as as, as urgent uh, in Malaysia. Yeah, but the carbon, you know, if you had a decent carbon price and asked how, you know, maybe $50 a ton up, rising upwards, how much that would affect a car. It isn't very much. You know, you're talking about a couple of percent or something on a car. It'd be hard to argue that that was a massive undercutting of European car makers. The right answer to that is to work with Malaysia on carbon policies and try to be helpful. 
Yes, and I'm very struck also that we're having, you know, go, going into COP26, there's this big discussion. In fact, the G7 communique mentioned it, this 100 billion investment um, north-south uh, in climate solutions. That was the Copenhagen commitment that the developed countries would invest uh, 100 billion from all sorts of sources in the developing countries. And uh, the OECD said that by uh, by 2018, the figure had got to just under 80 billion. So there's a kind of a shortfall of 20 billion. And there's this huge focus, endless discussion, uh, this narrative of how the developed countries have reneged on their responsibility and so on. And meanwhile, there's nearly 20 trillion of global exports. And we don't have nearly the sophistication of discussion about how to use those to help, whether it's the Malaysia or the Mozambique or frankly, the Saudi or anybody else to make this climate transition. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, I, I was involved actually in negotiating the 100 billion in Copenhagen in, in, uh, in 2009, working very closely with the prime minister of Ethiopia, Meles Sanawi, who was speaking for Africa. And it, it is, I think, largely totemic, but it's totemic of trust. You know, if you come to an agreement and you make an agreement, then you should deliver on that agreement. Now, that didn't distinguish much between grants and loans, and it, it, uh, it included private sector finance as well. And basically, if you look at the numbers now, my guess is that under the usual methods of counting them, which are controversial, but under the usual methods of counting them, will probably be at the 100 billion in a couple of years, either this year or next year. The, the bigger point is the one we touched on earlier. It's the right kind of finance in the right place at the right time. And this is a story of investment. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sure you can Bless you. edit that out. Um, but the Oh, no, we... We, 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 have, uh, we have the great Lord Nicholas Stern, one of the great economists of our time, sneezing. Great, and we're leave that brilliantly in. done. It's <laughs> only your comparing that produced it. But the, um, so what we need is help in bringing down the cost of capital and increasing the flow of capital so that these investments that we've been emphasising can be made. And that is something which is very important. That's not to tell me. That's about getting the uh, investment going. But I do think that if we increase the element of public finance um, that's flowing, I, I, I've been arguing with my friend Amar Bhattacharya that that should double from the rich countries between now, or between 2018 and 2025. That could start to make a difference. If we enhance the ability of the multilateral development banks to do low cost lending, in some cases, con uh, strongly concessional lending, that will make a big difference. So I think getting the financial flows done is very important. And as we withdraw trade finance from fossil fuels, and it's really rather substantial from rich countries, surely that trade finance could be reallocated to foster much better investments than it was fostering uh, in, in the past. And of course, uh, lowering barriers to trade, which is still quite important, in, uh, in many cases, will increase the ability to invest as well. So I think the whole spectrum of actions around withdrawing the financing uh, for fossil fuels, reallocating that trade financing somewhere okay. else, bringing down the cost of finance, increasing the flows from the MDBs, opening up trade opportunities. There's so much we can do. 
Well, you won't find me disagreeing as somebody who has sat through and participated in literally probably hundreds of conference sessions on how we could increase the flow of finance, reduce the cost of capital to developing uh, well, um, uh, clean energy and transportation projects and so on. I would definitely concur with that. I just want to finish with uh, a final question, if I might. Your um, your name has been very associated with this whole area of uh, the economics of climate change um, very publicly since 2006. And I know you were working on it well before then. Where are we today relative to, let's say, when the Stern Review uh, uh, was published in 2006? Are we, um, I suppose, the bookends are, it's got worse, we're even further from where we need to be to the problem is solved, we've got a few loose ends to tidy up, to somewhere in between those two. Where do you see us? It is somewhere in between, but let, let's carve it into the key dimensions. The science is, was very worrying in 2006, very worrying. It's much more worrying now. So many of the effects have come through faster and more severely than we thought. And of course, we haven't cut the emissions yet and we've not we've got to go beyond simply cutting them we've got to get down to uh, net zero science much more worrying technology has moved much faster than we thought we didn't think in 2006 that all the major car makers would be talking about the end of the uh, era of the internal combustion engine we didn't know in 2006 that just 15 years on uh, so much of electricity would be actually cheaper from renewable sources, round the clock renewable uh, energy without carbon price or subsidy. Technology has moved very fast. So we can go on into materials and hydrogen and so on. Uh, it, that technological change has been remarkable. The politics have moved more, more slowly than we would wish, but they're starting to gain traction. And finally, over the last three, four years, the private sector has really started to move. So there are promising signs. The most promising sign for me is the insistence of the young people. You know, I live in a, a work in a, in a university. The young people in our universities really understand this. They understand the magnitude of the problem. They can see what can be done and they rather, and they find what can be done a rather attractive way of organizing uh, life in the future. So science, really, really troubling, still more so. Technology, remarkable. We've got to invest in making a lot more uh, happen. Public policy, finally starting to pick up, too slow, but it's got to accelerate. Private sector, really beginning to move quickly, but that's got to spread right across and uh, have confidence in the young. So the, um, the, the, the summary would be something like the super tanker has actually started to show some, some signs of turning, but it is still a super tanker, is it not? It is, yeah, and we, we want to get it more and more crewed by young people. Very good. Very good. Well, look, let me thank you for joining me here uh, today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's always a great pleasure talking to you. But thank you for talking on the record uh, as part of this series. Um, and um, I, I'm sure I know that you need to drop off the call imminently. But as I say, accept, please, on my behalf and also on behalf of the audience, thank you, my thanks for joining me here on Cleaning Up. Thank you, Michael. It'd be lovely to get together personally for too long. Thank you. So that was Nick Stern, Lord Stern, Professor of Economics and Government at LSE, and of course, 
author of the 2006 Stern Review. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is Johan Rockström. He's the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and lead developer of the framework of planetary boundaries, which informs so much environmental policy today. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Johan Rockström. Thank you.